Well, hello there, and welcome to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again, the proprietor of Destination Venus, under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema, for another hour of geeky, scientific, pop culture and stuff. Now, if you've been listening over the last few weeks, you will have heard me several times promise that next week I would have a guest and you wouldn't have to listen to me droning on on my own for an hour. I said that last week, and I said that the week before, and I think I probably even said it the week before that. Well, guess what? Next week, we actually will have that interview for you. It's scheduled, it's in both of our calendars, and I keep calling it an interview. Well, it's not going to be an interview, it's going to be a discussion, I think. But more about that at the end of the show, because we've got quite a lot to get through. It's been a busy week. So, without further ado, let's start with... Science! Although, as ever, we're not really talking about science straight away. We're talking about engineering, and we're not even talking about that, really. We're talking about the Battle of the Bond villains. A couple of weeks ago, when I talked about Jeff Bezos and his brother and a guest going up into a suborbital spaceflight in the Blue Origin spacecraft New Shepard, I was pretty critical of the whole exercise, uh, suborbital hops belonging to the age of Alan Shepard and the early 1960s. It's not proving anything, except that the spacecraft works, and honestly, suborbital, ballistic suborbital flights, I, I, I don't see the point of them. But anyway, but anyway, it's his money, he can waste it how he likes. In that discussion, I did say that we didn't know the identity of the third person in the capsule. We knew it was Jeff Bezos, we knew it was his brother, and they'd auctioned off a seat for $28 million. Now, I still think that's an insane amount of money, but I care a little bit less about it now, because now we do know who the third person in that capsule is going to be. And it's going to be a woman called Wally Funk. And I am so incredibly pleased. I'm quite prepared to let Bezos off for all of this ridiculous posturing, which is all this flight really is, because Wally Funk finally gets to go to space. Now, unless you are a massive Mercury Project era space geek, you've probably never heard of Wally Funk. Um, and that's a shame, because she is a remarkable woman. So, if you're wondering, who is Wally Funk? Allow me to enlighten you. Come with me now, as we travel back in time. Look around. We are in the late 1940s, and we're in Las Vegas, but not the one you're thinking of. We're in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which is a small, unassuming town in the county of San Miguel, New Mexico. Sitting at a desk is a little girl called Mary Wallace Funk, known to all her friends simply as Wally. And what she's doing is making a model aeroplane. Because Wally Funk, even as a little girl, is fascinated by flight. And she's been making aeroplanes out of balsa wood now for quite some time. 
It's a hobby that many young boys of the time are into, and many of those young boys would go on to have careers in aviation, and some of them would make it to space. There's a problem for Mary Wallace Funk, though, and that problem is that she's a girl. And in the 1940s, most little girls weren't encouraged to do engineering -y types of things. They certainly weren't encouraged to dream of flight. They certainly weren't encouraged to dream of being pilots. That was for boys. But Wally Funk wasn't your average little New Mexican girl. Wally Funk was made of different stuff. And her parents, to their credit, seem to have not been your average Middle Western American parents either. They encouraged their girl to get interested in the things that she cared about. At nine, she had her first flying lesson. Now that would be remarkable enough, but flight wasn't Wally's only obsession. She was an outdoorsy kind of kid, out riding horses, riding bikes, skiing, hunting, fishing. When she was 14, she received the Distinguished Rifleman's Award for her excellent marksmanship. So good was Wally Funk with a rifle that the National Rifle Association, in the days before it went insane, sent her results to the president, Dwight Eisenhower, and Wally got a letter back congratulating her on her skill. At the same time, she also represented her region as a skier in slalom and downhill races. There's no question that Wally Funk was a remarkable young woman, and unquestionably a young woman who knew what she wanted and was prepared to do what she needed to do to get what she wanted. So at high school, she wanted to take engineering courses, auto mechanics, mechanical drawing, that kind of thing. But because she was a girl, they would only let her take things like home economics. This is a terrible state of affairs, which also existed in this country until ooh, certainly well into the 80s. So she left high school early at the age of 16 and went to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, uh, where she became a member of something called the Flying Susies. And she rated first in her class of 24 trainee pilots. She graduated from there in 1958 with a pilot's license and an associate of arts degree. So well done her. She moved on to Oklahoma State University, where she completed a Bachelor of Science degree, uh, drawn to Oklahoma State by a flying program that they had nicknamed the Flying Aggies. Uh, and so while she was doing a science degree, she also earned a number of aviation Instrumentation, instrument, you know what? I'm not even editing that out. Instrumentation and instruction ratings. She became licensed to fly commercial, single-engine, multi-engine planes, uh, single-engine seaplanes, uh, fly by instruments only, uh, which is military-grade stuff. Um, she gained a flight instructor certificate and a ground instructor certificate. Um, she received the Outstanding Female Pilot Trophy, the Flying Aggie Top Pilot, uh, and the Alfred Alder Memorial Trophy, two years in a row. And in 1964, her aviation work was recognised when she became the youngest woman in the history of Stevens College to receive the Alumna Achievement Award. 
So there she was, 20 years old, and a professional aviator. Uh, she went to work as a civilian flight instructor of non-commissioned and commissioned officers in the United States Army Air Corps. Um, that was at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. Uh, and she was the first flight instructor ever at a US military base. In autumn, in 1961, uh, she moved on uh, to be the chief pilot at an aviation company in California. Uh, she earned her airline transport rating in 1968, only the 58th woman in the world, in the world, in the US at least, to do so. Um, but it was still the 1960s. And like a lot of qualified female pilots, she just couldn't get a job because airlines didn't want to employ her. Besides, she'd been up to some other stuff in the 1960s, which, from my point of view, was a lot more interesting than anything she did in a conventional aeroplane. Let's go back again to 1961. That was when Wally Funk volunteered for something called the Women in Space Programme, colloquially known as the Mercury 13. The, the men who flew in the Mercury Programme were known as the Mercury 7. Very few people ever paid attention to the 13 women who also volunteered for a programme run by a guy called William Randolph Lovelace, who was an employee of NASA. And this was a NASA programme, although it wasn't an official government programme. And that, that difference is important. Um, when she heard that Lovelace was putting together uh, a team of women to assess for suitability for, for spaceflight, uh, Funk got in touch with him straight away. And she was younger than the recruitment age of 25. And he was looking for women between 25 and 40. He took one look at her qualifications and she was invited to take part in the program. In the end, um, 25 women were invited to enrol in this program. 19 did. 13, including Funk, um, graduated from the programme. On some tests, and this is really important, on some tests, she scored better than John Glenn, who was the first American to orbit the Earth. Um, she went through all the physical and mental testing that the male ans astronauts were put through. Um, she passed them all. She went into the sensory deprivation tank for... 10 over 10 and a half hours uh, and didn't hallucinate which is better than most people can possibly score uh, she qualified to go to space her score would have put she she was the third highest rated person in the mercury 13 program but the program was cancelled because of course it was before the woman was going to go the, the last test so wally funk didn't get to go to space. She did, however, remain a part of the wider NASA thing. She became, a good, she became a goodwill ambassador for NASA. She remained passionate about space flight. Um, and she has always dreamed of going into space. When NASA finally started accepting women to be astronaut applicants in the late 1970s, Funk applied three times. She was turned down 
for not having an engineering degree, her degrees in science, and not having a background as a test pilot, which given that work as a test pilot was not available to her, seems harsh to me. I know that that was the standard, but this is why this is why equality and equity are not the same thing. Um, of course she didn't have test pilot experience, she couldn't have had. So perhaps some other test should have been applied to judge her piloting skill, which she certainly had. Eventually, of course, women did fly into space. Uh, Eileen Collins, Sally Ride, so many since. In 2012, Funk put down her money to fly with Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson's um, space plane thing, which we'll talk about more in a bit, actually. But rather famously, Virgin Galactic has yet to put anybody into space. And I guess, tired of the wait, Molly Funk saw the opportunity with Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin and grabbed it with both hands. So she will finally get into space this month. And in doing so, she will become the oldest person to fly in space. Uh, the current record is actually with um, astronaut and Senator John Glenn, who in 1998 flew aboard the shuttle aged 77. Um, I'm not going to discuss a lady's age, but uh, Wally Funk's a bit older than that now. So, good on her. Because you know what? This is a proper, proper bit of inspirational stuff. This is a woman who had a dream since she was a child and who did absolutely everything she could possibly have done to make that dream come true. She never gave up on it. She fought hard for it. She didn't obsess. She didn't whine. She didn't pester people. She just worked diligently towards a goal, seizing every opportunity that presented itself. That's brilliant. And I tell you, I am such a fan of Wally Funk. I haven't even scratched the surface of her achievements. Her in aviation and all the work she's done for NASA over the years. She deserves this. And so, yes, Jeff Bezos and his bro going into space. Yes, that's pure ego. That's pure, I, I'm spending all my Amazon money to do this because I can. Wally Funk is different. Wally Funk's earned this. But in other related news, it is the case that Bezos isn't going to be the first billionaire to fund his way into space. Nope. A couple of weeks ago, when we talked about this, I did say that there were rumours that uh, our very own British Bond villain, Sir Richard Branson himself, might be about to steal Bezos's thunder in what can only be described as a massive ego-stroking exercise. The rumour that I got was that he'd be flying on the 4th of July, which clearly he hasn't done, because as I'm recording this, it's the 8th of July and he ain't gone yet. But it is now confirmed that he's intending to fly aboard one of his Spaceship 2 vehicles before Bezos. Now, I haven't talked about Spaceship 2 particularly, it is a very clever design, and I think it's, of all of the designs that the billionaire space bros have put together, that's Musk, Bezos, and Branson, 
uh, and let's not pretend that they design any of this stuff, but they're they're the names on the company. Spaceship Two is, to my way of thinking, the best solution for flight from Earth to low Earth orbit and back. Because it's not a ballistic rocket. Both SpaceX and Blue Origin are using conventional looking rockets. They sit vertically on a launch pad. They are launched into the air by a rocket motor, which uses a huge amount of rocket fuel, um, blasts them through the Earth's atmosphere, out of the Earth's atmosphere, and potentially at least into orbit. Uh, Blue Origin don't have anything that can put a person in orbit as yet, as far as I know. Um, demonstrably, SpaceX does because they've done it and have been doing it for some time, actually. So that's SpaceX, that's Blue Origin. Virgin Galactic has a different approach entirely. It's based on White Knight 1 and Spaceship 1, which was Bert Rutan's design that won the, Lunar, the, the Ansari X Prize. And Spaceship 2 is essentially just a bigger version. Spaceship 1 was a single-person spacecraft. Spaceship 2 is much bigger, can carry, can carry passengers, but it doesn't launch vertically with rocket motors. It launches like a conventional aeroplane because it launches attached to a, well, I call it a conventional aeroplane. It's a conventional aeroplane that it has jet engines and wings. There's nothing conventional about the White Knight or White Knight 2. Uh, images and links in the show notes. They're extraordinary looking craft. They're beautiful aeroplanes. Um, the White Knight plane, both White Knight 1 and White Knight 2, is a twin-bodied plane with a sort of space in between each body where a payload can be attached. Now, there are several things that can be attached to that payload, but what Richard Branson wants, wants, to, wants to, to be the payload is a spaceship 2, which is a space plane. It has wings. It's taken up to high altitude, attached to the White Knight aircraft. It's then dropped. It ignites its rocket motor and goes up to space from there. Why is that better? It's better because it's so much more efficient. The problem with launching a rocket from the ground using conventional means is you've got to punch through the atmosphere. The problem with that is that at sea level, Earth's atmosphere is quite thick and it might not seem like much to you but imagine trying to go through it at escape velocity if you want to put something into orbit around the earth you have to have a rocket that's traveling in excess of 17 and a half thousand miles an hour now obviously a rocket doesn't go that fast instantly but can you imagine what the air resistance is like at those kinds of speeds. The faster you try and go through air, the more the air resists you. Okay, you, if you've ever, don't do this, please don't do this, you'll hurt yourselves and I'll get in trouble. But I bet some of you have put your hand out of a car window when it's driving fast. You can feel the resistance of the air. If you've ever been out in a strong wind, it's the same difference. Okay, you need a huge amount of fuel to get through that. It's actually very inefficient. 
particularly when we live in a world where wings exist, jet engines exist. It's far more efficient and you're able to have a much smaller craft for the same job if instead of launching it from the ground under rocket power, you launch it from the ground under jet engine power. Fly it up, let it go. The air is much thinner, there's much less resistance, you need much less fuel to get to the kind of speed you need. It's much safer because you're carrying a lot less highly explosive rocket fuel. Rocket fuel is so much more explosive than jet fuel, it's ridiculous. Also, your equipment is much more likely to be reusable. Your plane certainly can be used thousands of times because it's such tried and tested technology. So it's cheaper. It's much, much cheaper. It's not technology that will get us to Mars, which is where Musk wants to go. It's not technology that will take us to the moon. Well, might take us to the moon. It won't land us on the moon, which is where Bezos is focused on. So I can see why they're so focused on their rockets. But I think the future of space exploitation and using space to develop technology is probably in low Earth orbit. And Branson's got the right idea about that. Space planes make sense. Spaceship 2 doesn't land in the way that um, Musk's SpaceX rockets do by sort of using retro rockets to land on their tails or the way Bezos's Blue Origin capsules do by getting rid of most of the rocket and parachuting the capsule down. It lands like a conventional aeroplane on a conventional runway. Because that's the other advantage. You don't need a spaceport. You just need an airport with a runway. And there are lots of those. So certainly, if we're going to commercialise space, and I think we must, then this is the way to do it, I think, for most applications to low Earth orbit at least. So, you know, still a Bond villain. And this this flight to steal Bezos' thunder is pure ego. I don't believe Richard Branson would be going to space this month if Bezos wasn't. But, you know, I see some promise in Virgin Galactic, so let's hope that some properly useful engineering and some properly useful capability comes out of this in the end. And that's it for the Battle of the Billionaires. Um, but we're not done with the science segment just yet, because I do actually have some real science for you. We're staying with um, astronomy and space, but this is properly science, proper astronomy, because it turns out that we didn't know everything we thought we knew about the moon. It is, of course, our closest celestial neighbour. We've been looking at it since literally the dawn of humanity, and it's featured in our folklore, in our myths, and it was probably the first bit of astronomy, the first bit of naked eye astronomy that humans ever did. You'd think that we knew everything there was to know about the moon by now. But no, we're still learning stuff. And the latest report is just unutterably cool, to me at least. I Maybe you don't all find this thing cool, but it turns out that the moon, just like a comet, has a tail. As it goes through space, it's leaving atoms of sodium behind it in its wake. Now, we can't see this with the naked eye, but it can be detected, has been detected. Um, the Earth goes through this tail uh, at least once a month, 
It doesn't matter. It, it's it's not affecting us in any way. It's just a thing we didn't know, and now we do. And I think that's just kind of cool. And more information in the show notes. I'm not just going to read out the article. That would be plagiarism, uh, and also boring for you. So the information is there. If you want to take a look, I recommend you do. And do you know what? For science, at least, we'll leave it there. So, in other news, something exciting could be about to happen in the MCU. Because a few days ago, Hugh, the best Wolverine there will ever be, Jackman, posted a couple of pictures on his Instagram page. Now, that in itself is not surprising. That's what Instagram is for, after all. But these pictures were of a Wolverine claw and then him standing next to Kevin Feige, 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 however that's pronounced, Kevin. He's standing next to Kevin. Now, the internet being what it is, the speculation frenzy began immediately. Does this mean that Hugh Jackman is going to reprise his role as Wolverine in a Marvel movie? Could this mean that there's an X-Men movie on the horizon? Uh, I think probably, if we're going to be sensible about this, the answers to those questions are in order, very probably, and no. Very probably, because we already know there's a whole bunch of actors who have been in non-MCU Marvel movies coming back to do cameos in various films. Alfred Molina is coming back as Doc Ock, for instance. It makes perfect sense that perhaps as a cameo in the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness film, we will see Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Are we going to see an X-Men movie? I think probably not anytime soon, for a couple of reasons. First of all, they would have to recast it, because the vast majority of X-Men alumni are probably not available or interested, or both. Uh, I mean, Hugh Jackman, he may come back and do a cameo as Logan, but he said himself when he retired as Wolverine, he didn't want to keep up the regime he needs to keep up to be that character. You know, the physical toll of the exercise and the workout and the pumping iron, you got to do to maintain a body like that. It's just, it's a lot. It's not really healthy. It looks fab, but it's not healthy. And, you know, Hugh Jackman is getting on a bit. He's older than me. And, you know, why would you want to do that? I think that's probably true of quite a few of the actors who have been in the previous X-Men movies, certainly the original ones. Um, I mean, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart maybe would come back as Magneto and Professor Xavier, but again, I don't, I don't, don't think they'd want to. I mean, they're both really old now. Do they want all the faff of, of being on a film set to make a feature film? Cameos, maybe, but... Uh, and, and so I think the memory of the X-Men, the memory of the Fox X-Men, just needs to fade a little bit before recasting and stuff is, is viable. I mean, just as you couldn't recast Tony Stark anytime soon and have 
you know, somebody other than Robert Downey Jr. playing. It's going to be a while before people are ready to accept anybody who isn't Hugh Jackman as, as Wolverine. He's been Wolverine since, what, 1999, 2000, something like that. It's a long time. So I don't think I'm going to get an X-Men movie anytime soon. I, I, the next phase has been announced and the X-Men ain't in it. So, you know, it, it's going to be I don't know, at least three or four more years before that happens. But it would be nice to see Logan, Wolverine, in an, a proper MCU movie. That would be good. I think Hugh Jackman's earned that. And I, I, I'm sure he'd be up for a cameo. Particularly if they let him keep his shirt on so he doesn't have to do the workout. So that's exciting. That's good. I'm all here for that. And speaking of things that are exciting and that I'm all here for, I should just very quickly remind you while we're talking about the MCU that Black Widow has finally opened in theatres. I'll say it again. Black Widow has finally opened in theatres. Also available through Disney Plus for an additional charge, but honestly, I think it, it's probably something that's worth seeing on the big screen. It depends how you feel about COVID. I do know that the Everyman Cinema, and I therefore presume all cinemas, have gone to a lot of trouble to make their screens as COVID safe as it's humanly possible to be. If you've got your vaccinations and you've had the two weeks maturing in time that the jabs need, go for it. It's been a long time since we've been able to get into cinemas. And if you're feeling comfortable doing it, just go and enjoy the experience. I think we can all agree that there's nothing quite like the shared experience of seeing a film on a big screen with other people around you. It's not the same. However good your home cinema system is, it's not the same to watch a movie on your own or with your family or just a couple of mates sitting on your sofa. It's just not the same experience. And of all the things we missed in lockdown, I think going to the movies, going to the theatre, I think that's that's probably the big one, for me at least. So be sensible, be safe, but go and enjoy yourselves. Uh, speaking personally, I've not had a chance to go and see it yet, but I fully intend to. And while we're on the subject of things we missed during lockdown, conventions are beginning to come back. For what, nearly a year and a half, it's been impossible to have many thousands of strangers in a space together. Recent sporting events are demonstrating that it is possible to do that, although I do note that there was quite a big spike in positive COVID tests in Scotland about a fortnight after the Scotland-England match, when a lot of people from Scotland went down to Wembley and mixed outside of the stadium with a lot of people and very possibly took a whole load of nasty germs back with them. So, you know, we do still clearly have to be careful. But if we can have, I don't know, 20, 30, 40,000 people in a soccer stadium, having a few thousand people in a convention centre is suddenly seeming less nuts than it seemed a year ago. For me, the two big conventions in terms of comics that are coming up are the Lakes in October uh, and our own much-beloved Thought Bubble returning to Harrogate in November. Uh, there are other cons all over the world, obviously, 
uh, the San Diego Comic Con, the granddaddy of them all, is virtual again this year. And in a, a not entirely surprising move, it's been snubbed online by both Marvel and DC. DC have their own thing online called the DC Fandome, which happened last year and will be happening this year. And I think Marvel have got their own plans for online stuff, but they're not taking anything to the online version of the San Diego Comic Con, uh, which is referred to as SDCC at home. And I, I, I wonder if the San Diego Comic Con might actually not ever return to its former glory once lockdowns are completely done. I think it was already being regarded as a bit of an, uh, an unwieldy behemoth. Uh, it was a huge event in 2019, which was the last, the last SDCC that they were able to hold. And it's, it's left its roots behind rather a lot. It, it's not really about comics anymore, and hasn't been for several years. And what is the SDCC without the first C? It's become a, a film and pop culture science fiction convention, really, uh, with comics as a sort of an afterthought almost. So I think there might be some changes to SDCC as, as we move forwards. And I actually think for comic conventions, the model that Thought Bubble and the Lakes use, where they actually do focus on comics, writers and artists, and don't really mess too much with the stars of the TV series and the movies. You know, they, they focus on the source material and they focus on what I would call real comics. The comics that aren't superheroes. The comics that people make themselves. The, the art side of the medium. And I think that's something that, that people from outside comics don't see enough of. Because superheroes have dominated the medium for so long and to such a great de degree. That's all people who aren't into comics think of when they think of comics. And there's so much more to comics than that, uh, which is something I hope that I am starting to show you uh, with this show. And that, of course, is a brilliant cue for this segue into Comics of the Week. And in that spirit, we're not going to have any talk of superheroes in this segment, except to say that this week there is a new X-Men 1. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, and that they will reboot the X-Men from issue 1 every couple of years or so. And we've got round to that point. I haven't read it yet. I will be reading it because I do love me the X-Men. I really do. It's just, they always mess it up by making it all hideously complicated. I was quite excited for the last X-Men one, which was, what, 18 months, two years ago, something like that. And uh, I enjoyed it. And then it just got complicated and I couldn't follow it. And so I got bored and went away. Hopefully that won't happen this time. They seem to be getting a little bit back to basics. There's a whole lot of stuff going on with the mutants in the Marvel Universe, and that's still going on. But the X-Men book now is going to go back to its roots and focus on a core group 
of superpowered mutants, hated and feared by the world they're trying to save, just going about their business being heroes. That's what I want from the X-Men. All the other mutant stuff is interesting. I'm not going to get into it here, but, you know, they've done some quite creative stuff. But I just want an X-Men team going off and doing superpowered stuff. And it looks as though this new X-Men series is going to give us that. So, hurrah! But it's not a pick of the week this week. So, we're going to start as far away from superheroes as I think it's possible to get with Mamo, issue one. This is a story of magic. And we follow the story of a young woman called Orla. Orla O'Reilly. She's the youngest in a long line of hedge witches. And she's moved away to make her own way in the world. But she, she's drawn back to her hometown after the death of Mamo, her grandmother. Because without Mamo there to kind of oversee the relationships between the townsfolk and the fairy folk, things are going wrong. The seas are impossible to fish, the crops are failing, and people's attics are getting overtaken by poltergeists. Now, Orla and her friend Joe are going to be pulled into worlds they never ever wanted to be part of. Can these two girls work together to save the town? So, the adventure begins. It's written and illustrated by an Australian writer-artist called Sass Millage, and it's her, her first major work in comics. She's done some illustration um, on, on Labyrinth. Um, I think she's done an, an, an illustrated an issue of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, and she has um, a Dick Grayson uh, young adult graphic novel called The Lost Carnival. This is her first ongoing series. If you liked The Last Witch, which was uh, something I recommended a few weeks ago now, you're going to love this. It's a beautiful piece of work. Great characters, which are really engaging. Um, you've got a wonderfully original art style. It's not cartoony, it's not realistic, it, it just fits the narrative perfectly. Um, and it's, it's, an, it's a story that deals with how we reconcile our responsibilities with the things we actually want to do, our dreams and how they fit into our reality. And that's something that everybody has to deal with. We all have obligations that are perhaps inconvenient and that get in the way of our dreams. And we all have to decide how we're going to deal with that. And so, yeah, I, I heartily recommend this. It's from Boom, who, who have become one of my very favourite publishers. I think Boom, Vault and Aftershock uh, are the, the place to go for the most innovative and most accessible stuff. And I, I'm really looking forward to following this story. It's a five-part miniseries. So you're not committing yourself to, like an eternity of reading stuff and you don't need to have read anything before it's a great introduction to a different style of comic which i can't recommend highly enough it's absolutely brilliant as is our second pick of comics for the week um this is ordinary gods and it's shaping up to be a science fictiony 
action epic. Picture this. We have five gods. The luminary, the prodigy, the brute, the trickster, the innovator. All from a realm beyond our own. All leaders in a war between immortals. Except now they're not. They've been trapped, sent to a planet that will serve as their prison, forced to live an endless cycle of death and reincarnation as humans. Enter Christopher. He's in his early 20s, he's got two loving parents and a kid sister who's 12. He works a regular job in a paint store. He's in therapy. He's also one of the five, which means if he wants to save everyone he cares about, he's going to have to reconnect with all of his past lives and do something unthinkable. He's going to have to become a god again. This is a story of, again, responsibility, of choices, of doing something you don't really want to do in order to protect the people that you care about. And I think it's probably becoming clear that I, I kind of like stories like this. Um, this is written by um, Kyle Higgins, who is also writing another excellent series. It's a superhero series, which is why I'm, not, why I'm not talking about it now, called Radiant Black, uh, which is one of a couple of really innovative superhero strips that have started in the last few months. Uh, and it's illustrated um, by uh, Felipe Watambi. He's probably best known for his work on The Flash, also superhero, which this is not. Um, I really like, again, I really like Christopher. He's flawed. He's a kid. I remember being 22. It was a long time ago, but I do remember it. And yeah, I think they've nailed it. So what I'm saying is that comics are brilliant and versatile things. And it doesn't have to be big men in capes punching each other. And it doesn't have to be all fight scenes. There's room for introspection. There's room for growth. There's room for story. And I don't think as many people as I would like actually understand that. So seriously, if you're passing the shop at any time when we're open, drop in and have a look. I won't even try and sell them to you if all you want to do is have a bit of a peek. Come and discover something And finally, I promised I'd tell you more about the discussion that we're recording on Monday for next week's show. The long promised thing that I've been banging on about now for weeks. Well, we're going to get a familiar voice back. I'm not going to tell you who, I'm going to, re I'm going to reveal that next week. But we're going to get back a familiar voice to talk about something that's very close to both our hearts and which is, as I think I said last week, probably ground zero for contemporary geekdom. And that is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Now, I'm including The Hobbit in all of this. I know The Hobbit is a separate book. I know it came out a long time before, but as far as I'm concerned, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, one big story. And it's something that I care about a lot. 
I first came across Lord of the Rings when my sister was given a copy of the full trilogy of Lord of the Rings for her birthday by my aunt. Decades ago now, this was when the Baxky cartoon version of Lord of the Rings came out. Um, I had read The Hobbit. I read The Hobbit as a much younger kid. I was, I was probably nine or ten, I think, when my sister got her copy of Lord of the Rings. I'd already read The Hobbit by then and loved it. And I'm pretty sure that Jack and Ori, which, honestly, if you're old enough to remember Jack and Ori, you're old. Um, but I think this is after Jack and Ori had done its excellent telling of The Hobbit, which was... Because normally Jack and Ori... If you don't remember Jack and Ori, Jack and Ori was um, a show on children's BBC, before they called it that. It was five, ten minutes long, I think. And it was usually just a famous person reading a story to camera. What they did with The Hobbit was they got a whole bunch of people. Uh, certainly, I think the goodies were involved. Uh, if you, I'm not even starting on the goodies. If you don't know who they were, just think of them as a comedy trio and leave it at that. Um, but they got a whole bunch of people to read different characters. So it was almost like a table read of a movie. It was great. Um... And I wish I could find it on YouTube. If anybody can find a link to the Jack and Nori version of The Hobbit, please let me know. I've been searching YouTube for ages and I just can't find it. It would be such a terrible shame if that footage had been lost. It really would. Anyway. Right, so I, I tried age 9 or 10 to read Lord of the Rings and I simply couldn't get into it. Um, if I'm honest, it's all the talk in the early chapters of the Nine Riders being abroad. And I genuinely thought, age nine or ten, what they're doing in France. So, you know, I may not have been the sharpest tool in the box of rolling pins back then. I came back to Lord of the Rings when I got to secondary school. I'd have been 12, I think, probably. And those extra couple of years of knowing stuff made a big difference. Um, I bought a copy of The Hobbit from the school's secondhand bookstore. And thought, you know what? I'd quite like to know what happens next. I'll have, I'll have, a, I'll have another go at Lord of the Rings. So I'd nicked my sister's copy of the complete trilogy, and uh, my life changed, really. I'd always been into sci-fi and fantasy, but suddenly there was this world of Middle-earth. And there were these creatures that spoke languages that made sense. And honestly, I think... That's the start of my interest in language. And so, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't know whether this has come up on the show before, but my degree is in linguistics. Uh, and I think it was the languages of Elvish and Dwarvish and Orkish that they speak in Lord of the Rings that kindled my interest in that. In fact, for my dissertation for my degree, I wanted to do a study of essentially made up languages like Elvish and Klingon and all that kind of stuff. And my supervisor wouldn't let me because he said he wasn't qualified to market. Um, so that was a disappointment. But anyway, by the by. And certainly I think when Lord of the Rings started coming out in the 50s, I think that was the point where people started to get a little bit obsessive about popular culture. I guess, you know, the, the science fiction guys that were around at the time, Clark and Asimov and Heinlein, I guess haven't they feed into this. But I, I really do think 
that it was it was the world of Middle Earth that was the the source of so much of what geeky geekdom is now the obsession that the immersion into the culture of it i mean i know people who can speak dwarvish i know speak i know people who can speak elvish or at least i know people who claim they can speak elvish and dwarvish since i can't i can't actually check and make sure they're telling me the truth they could just be spouting gibberish but somehow i don't think so and these certainly are languages that you can learn one of the brilliant things about talking was that he wasn't just a writer he was an academic. He was the professor of linguistics uh, at, was it Oxford or Cambridge? I can never remember whether it was Oxford or Cambridge. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. It'll be in the show notes. Um, and it, the, the skill with which he crafts those languages and also the way he uses the grammar of those languages when... Elves speak English, for instance. They speak English in a particular way that's tied in to the way Elvish works. That's deep level stuff, and people can really get into that. You add to that the themes of honour and loyalty, fealty even, you might call it, um, and the central theme of that which is good standing against that which is evil is, again, very much the core of... A lot of things that come later. I don't think there'd be a Dungeons and Dragons in the form that we have it without Lord of the Rings, for instance. So really excited to get stuck in to everything about Lord of the Rings. And it's impossible to talk about Lord of the Rings, I think, now without acknowledging the influence of the films, which were different from the book, but which were also good and faithful to the book which again is something that i'm old-fashioned enough to think is important the films do take liberties with the book in places and there are reasons for that i'm sure in our discussion next week we'll get into the fact that there are almost no women in lord of the rings the book and some things that happen in the book that are done by male characters are given to female characters in the films whose roles have been expanded and I like to think that had Tolkien been alive now, writing this book now, he would have done the same thing. I don't think in the 40s and 50s when these books were being written, I don't think most academic men would have thought of women as people who could do great deeds of battle. You know, they weren't saga worthy, I think, in the culture at the time. Now, I don't defend the clear misogyny behind that society i'm just saying that i'm not blaming tolkien for it i mean i'm acknowledging that he displayed it but i'm not blaming him there was a lot of that sort of thing about at the time and something else that i suspect may come up next week is attitudes to race now there aren't different human races particularly in in the Lord of the Rings, um, most of the people are basically white Europeans in appearance. There are some slightly dodgy bits that are a little bit uncomfortable to read now about some of the, the evil humans being sort of dark. But I don't think, I genuinely actually don't think that was meant to suggest they were 
what we would consider black people today i don't i don't think that intention was that that perception is certainly there and that's something we should be aware of i don't think that was the intention i think what is troubling though in lord of the rings with regards to race is that he uses the word race when he's talking about species and so the idea that there could be a good race and an evil race does come through in the book and that's problematic in the real world for reasons that i suspect are probably pretty clear and it also plays into the idea that there are groups of sentient beings i'm going to call them species that are sort of monolithic in their outlook there are no evil elves only good elves there are no evil hobbits only good hobbits even the hobbits who do bad things aren't bad people you know you're at the end of the novel he goes out of his way to explain this and i'm not saying that spoil horn for a book yourself um and yet you know there are no good orcs there are no good half orcs there are no good uruk hai you're either from a race that is good in which case you're good or you're from a race that is bad in which case you're bad and again i think that is problematic because it does encourage a worldview where we drop people into groups and label them as this or that and again it would be disingenuous i think to blame tolkien solely for this this was an attitude that was prevalent in the society of the time um if you if you read stuff that was written in the 30s 40s and 50s um where europeans or um white americans talk about people from other races there is that tendency to just make blanket statements about oh this race is lazy and needs to be made to work this race is shifty and can't be trusted this race is this and that race is that and again i don't condone that tolkien buys into that world view um and i think it's important to recognize that he does it's a it's a a complaint we can lay at the book and as a modern reader it's something we should be aware of but again it is an idea that was prevalent at the time and something that people like tolkien i suspect would not have thought about they would just have gone along with it it was part of the just the common intellectual culture of the time now we are fortunate that there were people who didn't buy into that and who did things that have changed that culture now although perhaps not as much as i would like so that's our discussion for next time and i'm telling you this in advance because i'd like you to have a bit of a watch of the movies at least um they're worth watching believe me they stand up um although if we're going to talk about racism um the humans who ride the elephants at the end of return of the king and again it's a nearly a 20 year old movie i'm not blowing a spoiler horn for it um i think they might be a bit racist but you know i'm interested to know what you think actually so if you are so minded have another look at the lord of the rings movies and even better you might want to have a bit of a read of the book if you want to do that 
I'm sure this will come up, but I'll warn you anyway. If you've not read the book before, please feel free to skip the chapter with Tom Bombadil, and you don't have to read all the songs. They are really annoying. Um, but, you know, if it's the first time, maybe read it all, but be aware that nothing happens in the chapter about Tom Bombadil that has any effect on the plot whatsoever. I've read Lord of the Rings at least once every couple of years, every year since I was a teenager, and I've only read the Tom Bombadil chapter maybe three or four times. Because, yeah, just don't. I'm sure that me and my guest next week will probably get into that because I'm not sure they're going to agree with me. So, yeah. Anyway, it's been a while since I've set homework. Go and have a look at The Lord of the Rings. There you go. Homework. I see you can take the teacher out of the school, but you can't take... The... No, that doesn't work. Anyway, homework. You've got it. And finally, I suppose we should probably mention that there's some sporting thing going on. Now, I know it's traditional that geeks don't do this sort of thing, but we are supposed to have our fingers on the pulse of the popular culture, and there is very little in British English, English popular culture at the moment bigger than England winning at the footy, which, as I record this on the 8th of July, we did yesterday, knocking Denmark out so that we go through to the finals on Sunday. By the time I see you again, um, we'll know whether football is coming home or not. And I just want to point out that every single person singing that song, wearing the England shirt, they're all geeks. They're football geeks. They're no different than us. They even got cosplay, because none of those dudes in that stadium last night wearing England shirts have ever played for England. Well, actually, some of them probably had, but you know what I mean. So, they're just like us. Let's roll with that. And that is it. Safe to remind you that tickets for Thought Bubble in November in the Convention Centre in Harrogate are still available. They're on sale now. Just go to www.thoughtbubblefestival.com and you can find out more about what's going on at T-Bubs this year and also get your tickets sorted. We don't know for sure what the limits will be, what the restrictions will be. The government is currently saying there won't be any. I'm not convinced that that will still be the case in November, but it may be that numbers need to be limited. I would get your tickets sooner rather than later, is what I'm saying. Uh, so, there you go, more homework. Because honestly, if you live in the Harrogate area, if you live within travelling distance of Harrogate, you don't want to miss Thought Bubble. It is the best comics convention of the year. And I don't even think that's a biased statement. I think an awful lot of people would agree with me on that. And that then is us for this week. Thank you for your very kind attention. We are back next week with a discussion about Lord of the Rings, but other stuff too. We might have some space flights to report on by then. Uh, all that remains for me to do is to tell you that uh, Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media. Uh, it is broadcast on Harrogate Community Radio and it's also available in a podcast edition, which at the moment is exactly the same as the radio edition. Uh, just search for Geeking with Destination Venus in the podcatcher of your choice. And so, until next time, all that remains for me is to remind you to be kind to yourselves, to be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, stay geeky, until the next time we meet here, to go geeking. <laughs>